Well, turn with me then to the letter of 1 Corinthians, Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. So the church in Corinth was a large church, as we understand it, numerically. It had been growing. There had been a number of wonderful conversions to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we read about that in Acts chapter 18, the conversion of the synagogue leader, Crispus, the ruler, and many others. And it had been growing in grace and in the knowledge of God. But over time, a worldly spirit had begun to seep into the church that started to affect things and started to choke the spiritual life. And Paul wrote to them in order to root out this problem. He was concerned that even though the church had been growing, now the church was growing apart in terms of the people in terms of their relationships. Why was it? Well, it was growing apart because of disunity. It was becoming fragmented. Party spirit had risen up amongst the church. There were cliques, the cult of personality. We read of that in chapter 1, verse 11 and 12. I am a Paul and Apollos and so on. A growing apart. Had also been a growing apart because of immorality. And infighting. Chapter 3, verse 3, there is envy, there is strife, there are divisions among you. Are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? And there were some things going on in the church that were scandalous that weren't even going on outside of the church. The church was growing apart. There was a spirit rising up, which was anti-authoritarian, questioning Paul's authority, questioning his apostolic mandate, and people unwilling to submit to him. Some did, some didn't. They were growing apart. There were some who were taking others to the courts outside the church to deal with issues inside the church. Disputes. They were growing apart. And they were growing apart because of disorder in worship. Chapter 12, chapter 14, dramatic gifts of the Spirit were being identified and emphasized and dominating. There wasn't the love in the fellowship that there should have been. They were growing apart. And Paul writes this letter to deal with this issue. He says you've been growing, but you're growing apart but you should be growing together in Christ. You should be serving one another. You should be united in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he writes to them in chapter 2, verse 2, he reminds them of the essence of his preaching. When he was among them, he says this, For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucify. You see, a worldly spirit and sin causes division. It causes the church to grow apart and fragment. But the gospel of Christ causes the church to unite in him and in its purpose, in singleness of mind and heart, as Jesus is at the center, Jesus Christ 
and him crucified. So for this series in 1 Corinthians, I want to use the theme of growing together in Christ. Or growing together for shorthand. Because from that, I think we can address some of these issues and understand what Paul is getting at. He wants unity. He wants unanimity. He wants service. He wants love. He wants the Lord Jesus Christ to be exalted in that church, growing together in Christ. So this afternoon, we're carrying on in the series. This is the second message that we'll come to. So the title of the message this afternoon is, I always thank God for you. I always thank God for you. And we'll start from verse 4 of chapter 1. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God, which is given you in Jesus Christ. He starts off with thanksgiving. When you think of Cassfield's church, what comes into your mind? Something that causes you thanksgiving? When somebody asks you at work or another Christian asks you, and you talk about the church, do you start off with thanksgiving? Paul starts here with thanksgiving for the church, and we'll find out why as we work through the message this afternoon. So there are a number of things, a number of reasons why he wants to thank God. He says, I always thank God for you because you have been enriched. You have been graciously enriched. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you by Christ Jesus or in Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by him. Through the grace of God, they were an enriched fellowship. They were a gospel church in Christ. Paul gives this wonderful statement, doesn't he, in verse 2. He says, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. This grace of God which is given you has caused you to be sanctified. What does sanctified mean? It means to be made holy, to be set apart. You believers at Corinth, you are set apart. Why or how? Well, they're like branches connected to a vine. Jesus Christ is the holy vine. These believers were branches connected because Christ is holy. They were made holy. They were set apart for him. Set apart from the world and sin. Set apart for Christ. They come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as their savior. They've been given what we call definitive sanctification. Set apart. Made holy. They had a new definition. They had a new identity. They had a new class. They had a new status. Before God, you position the grace of God through Jesus Christ had come to them and he'd worked within them. In verse 2, it says they were called to be saints. They were called to be holy. They were to be set apart from the world, connected to the Lord Jesus Christ, united to him by faith. They were made holy. And the branches are then to grow fruit. They're to live out that holiness. They're to live out that light and the evidence of the grace of God in their lives. They're to be progressively sanctified and 
conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're definitively sanctified. They're connected to him. Now they're to grow in him. And it's all due to the grace of God. What a wonderful reason then for God, to thank God for the grace he has shown to this church. Is that how we view the church? We can look at each other, can't we? What we wear, and we know each other, and we can enjoy each other's company. But how we need to remember these truths, what God has done within us. What Christ has wrought in us by the Spirit. The grace of God has been at work within us. What we to do is to grow in holiness. To grow in holiness. So he says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God given to you by Christ Jesus or in Christ Jesus. As it says in the original, as I understand it, and in other translations, the grace of God given you in Christ Jesus that you were enriched in everything by him. So what is this enriching? What is this enriching, this gracious enriching that Paul speaks about here? Well, it's the blessings of the gospel. It's the blessings of a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's the blessings of an inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled that doesn't fade away. It's all the riches, all the treasures that they have in Christ Jesus. How do we know that? Well, he goes on and says, in everything, by him or in him, in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. So he's saying you're enriched in Christ. Yes, you've got gifts, but all of this came to you when you believed the gospel, when you believed the testimony about Jesus Christ when you trusted in him, when you came to trust under the shadow of his wings, when the Holy Spirit worked in you and he opened your heart and you believed in Christ and you received his righteousness and his salvation, you were enriched in him. You believe the testimony of the apostles about Christ. You have become enriched. But it doesn't stop there. We don't just stop preaching the gospel when people get saved. We continue to preach the gospel because the gospel itself is enriching for our Christian lives. The Corinthians have received the gospel. They believed the gospel. The Spirit had worked with them and within them. They'd internalized the gospel, but it hadn't stopped there. Paul went on to preach the unsearchable Riches of Jesus Christ, as it says in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 8, the unsearchable riches in the life, the death, the resurrection, and everything that they have in their inheritance. And as they understood those riches, as they believed them, as they began to feel the blessing and the benefits of them, as they grew in faith and appreciation of them, they were enriched in their faith. They were nourished in them. Paul puts it like this in Ephesians 1.18. He says, the understanding, the eyes of your understanding were enlightened, that you would know the hope of your calling and the riches of the glory of your inheritance in the saints. See what I'm getting at here? 
We're rich in Christ, but we don't often realize that or taste it or feel it or wonder at it as we ought to. When we understand these things, when we grow in these things, when it's not just a head knowledge, but it's a heart knowledge and it moves our affections towards the Lord Jesus Christ and we want to serve him and to honor him and we want to use our gifts in the church. Thomas Martinez was 67. He was a homeless man. He was living on the streets of Santa Cruz in Bolivia. He had really nothing going for him at all. His life was a mess. He had alcohol addiction. He had drug habits. One day he sees a number of police officers coming towards him. So what does he do? He turns around and he runs. They run after him, but he gets away and they don't see him. They can't find him. What Thomas Martinez didn't realize was that those police officers were carrying the news that he'd just inherited $6 million from his ex-wife. He was never found. In Bolivia, he was known as the one who, the new millionaire, paradoxically not knowing his fortune. The inheritance was his, was his, but he couldn't enter into it. He couldn't grasp it. He couldn't touch it. If only he'd known what he had, how he would have dramatically transformed his life beyond his wildest dreams. Isn't it true that sometimes we can live like spiritually homeless people? We've been gifted an amazing inheritance, but we don't realize it. We can't take it in. Sometimes we can run away from it. But when we begin to realize the inheritance that we have, the riches that we have in the gospel in Christ, when it's our prayer that we would know it and touch it and taste it, when we pray for the preaching of the word of God on a Sunday and on a Wednesday, or we read it at home and we recognize by faith these riches and we appreciate them, it enriches our souls. It causes growth and it nurtures us in faith. What does he say as well in verse 5? He says, you enrich in everything through him, in him, in all utterance and in all knowledge. And he mentions two gifts here. Because the grace of God was at work in sanctifying and setting these people apart, then the grace of God was also at work to gift the people for acts of service. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 8, when Christ ascended on high, he gave gifts. To people, men and women, believers. Why? To serve in the church of Jesus Christ. What are the two gifts that are mentioned here? Utterance, which is speech, and all knowledge. He says, you enrich. I thank God for you. You're rich in Christ. You're rich in your inheritance. May you know more of those riches and understand and grasp them and grab hold of them by faith. But you're rich in terms of giving gifts as well to use in the church of Jesus Christ. Why does he mention speech and knowledge? Well, maybe those were two things that certain groups in the church (coughs) thought they were superior in and thought gave them some kind of warrant to be elitist and fed spiritual pride. 
Although Paul counteracts that by saying, you were enriched. All of you were enriched in this. All of you have received gifts. All of you can speak for Jesus Christ. All of you can encourage each other in the way. All of you can speak the gospel and bring blessing and riches to each other in the word of God. The knowledge of Christ, the knowledge of the gospel. We know as we read this letter, we see there is the misuse of gifts. But misuse doesn't justify no use. Gifts aren't given to make us look good. These are grace gifts. What are the gifts he's talking about? Well, obviously they're connected with speech and utterance here. But it's a general sense. So what does Paul do? He thanks God for the gifts that the church has received. So do we thank God for the gifts that the church has received? Do you thank God for the blessings? Do you thank God for those who engage in particular avenues of service in the church? Do we thank God for what they do and to give their time and commitment? Do we encourage them? Do we pray for them? But let me give you a challenge. Have you discovered your gifts in the church and for the church? Because God has given gifts that would might enrich the church and use them in the church and in service for him. They're given by grace. You might think, well, I don't have a gift. Well, Paul will cover that in chapter 12. We all have gifts, and we all have the gift of encouraging one another. Perhaps that's what he's talking about here in verse 5. Enrich the church by using your gift. Don't let it rust and realize the inheritance you have. You are enriched by grace, firstly. Secondly, you are graciously called into Jesus Christ. Second reason why he thanks God for them and the grace that they've received. Because they've been graciously called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's in verse 9. We'll cover this now, then we'll look at verses 7 and 8 to finish in the final point. So called into the fellowship of Jesus Christ. What does that actually mean? Well, the word call is used a number of times in the Bible. There is the gospel call, which is the invitation to come and trust and believe in the Lord Jesus. The call of the gospel, evangelism, the evangelistic call to come and trust. And Jesus said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What was he doing? He was inviting people to come and trust in him. To leave their sins behind. To leave legalistic thinking behind and to trust in Jesus Christ. But I don't think that what, that's what is meant here in verse 9. This being called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, has been termed theologically the effectual call. The effectual call. It's not separate from the general gospel invitation. It works with it, but it goes beyond it. So if you look on your hymn sheet on the back, there is a question and answer from the Baptist Catechism. It was 
originally published or compiled in 1695. It's built on the Westminster Shorter Catechism. I think the wording's identical between the two being called. So question 43, I think it's 34. What is your effectual calling? Answer, effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills, he doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ offered to us in the gospel. So that's a helpful summary of what it is. And the man who wrote it didn't just have their own ideas. If you look underneath on one to five, those are some of the scriptural justification for what the effectual call actually is. Work of the Spirit, convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, renewing our will, persuades us and enables us to embrace Jesus Christ offered in the gospel. So we'll look at some of those scriptures together as we work through this uh, just now. So why is this called effectual? What do you mean by effectual? It's more than just the invitation. It's a sovereign summons. It's a powerful call that accomplishes something. It has an outcome in mind, and it will secure that outcome. It will make happen what it says will happen. The difference between the effectual call and the gospel call, the gospel call is like an invitation to a wedding. It can be refused. The effectual call, the call here, called into the fellowship of his son, is a call which is a summons. It's a powerful summons into the presence of God. It cannot be rejected. Why is it so powerful? For the reason for the power of the call lies in the one who makes that call. It is God who works, works this call in the life of a sinner, of a person. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's God's work to call us out of darkness into his marvelous light. It's not our work to do that. We can't do it. God has to do it. God is the source. His is the power. His is the grace. His is the purpose. His is the will to do it. It doesn't happen without God. Turn back with me to Romans chapter 8 and verse 28 and 29. Perhaps we'll go for verse 29 and 30, where it says this. For whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be called, conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. This verse 30 has been called the golden chain of salvation. You can't break the chains in this. This is God's work of grace in the life of a sinner. 
predestined before time began, called, justified, and glorified. We read 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, called out of darkness into his marvelous light. It's a call where the dead soul is made alive. The dead person is not operating, the spirit is operating on the dead person spiritually to bring life. So like the Lord Jesus, the tomb of Lazarus. Lazarus is inside the grave. He's been there three days wrapped in the, the grave clothes. But the Lord Jesus stands outside and he calls from the outside and says, Lazarus, come forth. And as those outside the tomb begin to hear the rattling and the movement inside the tomb, it's a call that's powerful. It's the work of the Holy Spirit to loose him and to let him go. Well, what is the effect? Let's look at one or two more scriptures as we think about this. Turn with me to John chapter 6, verse 44 and 45. There's some wonderful verses here as well. We're talking about this being called into the fellowship of Jesus Christ. Jesus says this, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. This is the drawing, the drawing to Jesus Christ. No one can come unless the Father draws him or her. Also in verse 64 and 65, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, therefore, have I said to you, no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father, the Spirit working and bringing life and enabling and drawing, convincing. It's a wonderful thing. We speak of irresistible grace, irresistible grace to call somebody into the presence of God, to the Lord Jesus Christ. But that could also almost imply that the person is rebellious or comes kicking and screaming to Jesus Christ. That is impossible because he changes the heart. He renews the will. He opens their minds. He changes their desires so they want to come and believe in Jesus Christ. The rebellious heart is subdued. The Holy Spirit is at work and the person willingly comes and places their trust in the Lord Jesus. And he's saved from the sins. Well, it's a wonderful word. There's just a few scriptures there and a bit of a meditation about that. It's powerful and there's some applications I'll come on to in a minute. But what does it say about this call? You are called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. We're not called into nothing. We're called to a person. There is a vertical aspect to this call, and there is a horizontal aspect to this. The Corinthians are people saved by faith in Jesus Christ, and they're called to grow in that knowledge of Jesus Christ. 
We fellowship with him. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. To know God, which has come out twice already in the last week or so. It's amazing. I prepared this message not knowing what David was going to preach on. But to glorify and to enjoy him forever. This summons, this effective call. It's like getting a summons to Buckingham Palace. Who's been to Buckingham Palace? Anyone been to Buckingham Palace? One or two? I haven't been to Buckingham Palace. It's like a summons to go to Buckingham Palace. Is it a summons just to go into the grounds of Buckingham Palace? And then to look through the window to see if you can spot if the king's in today or which room is he in? And to ask the staff in the grounds, what was he like? Have you met him? No, it isn't just a, a summons, a call into the grounds. It isn't just a summons into the palace itself that you can walk around and see the rooms and, and be impressed by the architecture and the beauty of it. No, it's a call, it's a summons into the throne room. Not just into the throne room, it's a summons and a call into the presence of the king. God is faithful by whom you are called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, that we may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable to his death, to seek his face, to know his presence, to admire his majesty. The Lord Jesus said in John 17, verse 3, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And as we've said already, that's the essence of eternal life, to know God himself. It's a wonderful privilege. The apostle saying, I, I thank God for the, the grace that is given to you in Jesus Christ. You're enriched in Christ. You're enriched with gifts. You're enriched because you've been called into this fellowship to know God himself. To know the Lord Jesus Christ, Savior and Lord. The calling of Israel was a calling out of Egypt into the promised land. Call on a journey and God bound himself to be their God. That he will be with them, that they will be his people. Shekinah glory, the presence, the face of God. Hey, we're called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. There is this vertical aspect to this, which is key and priority, but there is this horizontal aspect as well. We're called into the fellowship of the church, of the people of Jesus Christ. To grow together as his people. Acts 2, chapter 42. Acts 2, verse 42, it says that the believers devoted themselves to fellowship and to the breaking of bread in prayers. We're a body, we're an army, we're a flock, all these corporate pictures. We're called out of darkness, we're called together within the fellowship of the church. We're called to celebrate the Lord's Supper together, to fellowship with Jesus Christ, with him, but we also fellowship together around the table. What a wonderful truth it is. Paul thanks God for what he's done in grace, in calling this church 
to a relationship with Jesus Christ and that relationship with each other. Well, what are the, the practical things we can take out of this? Firstly, this. We're not called to be isolated Christians. We're not called, no man is an island or woman is an island. None of it is to be independent. We don't grow in grace independently of the church and certainly not independently of Jesus Christ. It doesn't happen. We're called to interdependence in the church, to relationships, to growing together in Christ. Being part of the church is that amazing means of sanctification, growing into likeness in Jesus Christ, to be separate, to keep ourselves on the periphery. That's not the way to grow. It's growing apart. No way to grow together and to use our gifts in the church interdependence. Secondly, assurance for believers in Christ. We have the certainty that just as it's called you, he will justify you and he will glorify you. The redemption that Christ has accomplished through the work of the Lord Jesus will be effectively applied to every sinner. All of his elect. No one will be left behind. Should also make us dependent prayers. We pray for family. We pray for friends. We pray for children. We pray for work colleagues. We pray for neighbors. What do we pray for them? That God might call them out. Because if he works in them, they can't turn him down. They can't turn away. They must embrace the gospel. They want to embrace the gospel. We can persuade. We can do all that we can in evangelism with God's help and blessing. He can renew their hearts and their minds. This gives hope. The power of God enables them to embrace Jesus Christ as he's freely offered to them in the gospel. It's a call to interdependency. It's a call of assurance. It's a call to prayer. It's a call to evangelism. It's a call to self-examination. 2 Peter chapter 1, make your calling and election sure. Question is, have you ever trusted in Jesus Christ yourself? Have you believed in him for your own soul's sake? Have you embraced the gospel, the offer of forgiveness? Have you turned from your sin and received Christ as your own Savior and Lord? There is the gospel challenge. There is the call of the gospel, and that is legitimate and right. And we're all responsible to accept that call and believe in Christ ourselves. And if you're a Christian tonight, your faith is from God himself. It's not your faith. It didn't come from you. He is the source of it. And the good work he started, he will bring on to completion. Faith only grows in the soil of a renewed heart. Renewed heart. So Paul thanks God for the grace given in Christ. He thanks God for the fellowship of Jesus Christ, our Lord. I mean, called into that. Do we wonder at the privileges that we have? Do we thank God for the church? That is what we are. According to the presence of Christ. Thirdly, who graciously kept verses seven and eight. He says there, so that you come short in no gift, 
eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's confident for the present, but he's also confident for the future. And I've alluded to it in the last point. Whatever the ups and downs of church life, whatever the ups and downs of a fellowship, those whom he has called into the fellowship of his son, he will confirm us. He will sustain us. He will keep us going on the journey right to the end. Why? What confidence can we have in that? Verse 9, God is faithful. Because it's all bound up in the character of who God is. Or what he's like. Or what he does for us. It's God who begins this work of grace. He will complete this work of grace within us. Right to the end when the Lord Jesus Christ will return. The reason why I had the reading earlier on in Deuteronomy chapter 7 was because there's that parallel there. In verse 9, Therefore know the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commands. He keeps his covenant. He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't break his oath. He doesn't break his promises. He doesn't change his purposes. What he's begun, it will complete in you and me, believer. God is faithful. That is our confidence. He is our confidence. That is the goal for his church. He will confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Another way of putting blameless is unimpeachable. Unimpeachable. No accusation of the devil. No accusation of our own hearts. Can overturn or undo the righteousness of Christ. Or it's too much for the blood of Christ to cleanse us. Or it's too strong that the grace of God cannot overcome it. And work within us. That you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. It says there with those who are eagerly waiting for the revelation of Jesus Christ. We're waiting for it. It's not happened yet. David and Brittany, it's happened. Gabrielle Dorothea Grace is here. The months of waiting and anticipation are over and they've held her in her arms. But for Josh and Alex, they're still waiting and anticipating eagerly for the baby. And as Christian believers, it's something that is central to us, that we're those who are waiting and anticipating the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and this keeping, this grace that has come to us will secure us. He will not let us go. This day is anticipated with joy in the celebration of the Lord's Supper, chapter 11, 26, and we've already celebrated that tonight. We do this until he comes. When the dead in Christ will be raised, chapter 15, verse 23 and 52, to an incorruptible life. When mortality puts on immortality, we shall be changed. God will keep us. He's faithful. Until that day. 
What can we do? Well, the apostle says, I thank my God always concerning you because he is optimistic for the church. He believes that their outcome is glory. And he's stirred to thankfulness for divine grace, for faithfulness. The God who planned this work from the foundation of the world will complete it. And for you and I as believers this afternoon, we should be full of thankfulness that the salvation that we have doesn't depend on us. It depends on God himself. What encouragement there is in these things. Some of you may not have trusted in Christ. Some of you may not have trusted in him because you feel, well, what if I, what if I can't keep it up? What if I, I, I drop out of the race? What if I, I give up and I'm like a sheep and I wander away? Well, that's much like a drowning man refusing to trust the lifeguard because the drowning man cannot swim. It's only the lifeguard that can pull us out. It's only the lifeguard that can save us. We can never save ourselves. Yes, we are to be those who persevere in the faith. Yes, we are to be those who give ourselves to the means of grace. Yes, we are to be those who seek the Lord's face and to do the things that Scripture calls us to do. God works through these things and in these things and above these things to guard us and to keep us. Because he's faithful. So this afternoon, let's look to him, not to ourselves. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus. I thank my God always. I always thank God for you. Do we thank God for the things that he's done for us? Do we thank him for his grace? Enriching. Calling us into the fellowship of his son. His grace that will sustain us, confirm us. Guard us and keep us to the end. Paul's example of thanksgiving. We harboring criticisms of the church this afternoon. Church isn't perfect. None of us are perfect. We strive with God's help to be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. May God help us in these things. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these amazing truths and we pray that you would help us to grasp the riches of them, help us to grasp the beauty and glory of our salvation, help us, Lord, not to be like the man who doesn't realize what he has, help us to be those who understand and find true joy and peace and wonder at what you have done and glorify and honor you. Lord, maybe those who seek to know you, call into this fellowship with yourself, to know you, to trust you, to grow in the knowledge of you, and to fellowship with one another. And Lord, we pray, help us to depend on you, to recognize that in ourselves, in our flesh, there is no good thing, that you are the God who keeps, and you are the one who will bring us faithful to the end. Lessons, then we pray, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.